Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Lauren Berlant's notion of cruel optimism. Now before jumping into that, uh, if you want to follow me anywhere other than on YouTube, uh, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats if you're into that. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be, you'll be able to find it in podcast form pretty much wherever you get podcasts where there won't be any ads. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the video on YouTube. Uh, if you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe. If you're new here and you don't know what this channel is all about, I just try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat, at least I think, a concise uh, and clear way to give you, uh, to help you along in your philosophical journey. If you want to help me out in any other way, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, where there are links in the description if you'd like, but obviously no pressure. And I think that more or less covers it. So cruel optimism, for at least the idea, comes from Lauren Berlant's book titled Cruel Optimism. Now, I'm not going to cover that book on this channel, which is what I normally do. I, I cover texts in their entirety because it's it, firstly, it's quite difficult. Um, but in order for Berlant to communicate her, her ideas, she uses a lot of pop culture um, evidence or, or examples from like television to movies to uh, books and, and short stories that would make presenting her ideas really difficult because I would have to like give some kind of uh, plot summary of the thing she's describing or it just wouldn't make sense. So because of that I, I decided I probably won't cover her text instead I'll just focus on this one term that is cruel optimism. And to be quite simple about it Cruel optimism for Berlant is the phenomenon in which you attach significance to something as though it's going to lead to your salvation, lead to your uh, flourishing, lead to your happiness, that in fact hinders that happiness. So one example, people who play the lottery think that winning a lot of money is going to make them happier people. It's going to make them um, more I don't know, virtuous. It's going to make them better people. When, in fact, studies have shown time and time again, you know, winning the lottery does not necessarily portend or come before a, 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 an increase in happiness. In fact, the opposite has been seen to be the case. So that's just kind of a specific example. And to some extent, I could stop this video there, but I want to give a little bit more about Berlant's theory and how it is situated within a certain socioeconomic uh, paradigm and, and really the, I guess, the point that Berlant is trying to get across. So cruel optimism is describing a relationship. That is a relationship between yourself and the lottery, for example, or uh, yourself and some object you have to buy online that, that is like the thing you need to make you happy. And this obviously feeds into a certain culture of, of overconsumption where we attach significance to objects as though they will make us better people, make us happier, when in fact they do not. They do quite the opposite. So we have a relationship to these objects and these form various attachments. And all throughout the course of history, whenever we've made these kinds of relationships, whenever we've fostered these connections, these attachments, be they between people, animals, even objects, we have to some extent attached, in Berlant's words, a degree of optimism to it. That is, we make these attachments in order to make ourselves better. 
But historically, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that these uh, attachments, albeit these these optimistic ones, are going to therefore be cruel. That is, they're actually going to hinder us. So something happened in a certain part of human history in which attachments began to become uh, cruel. That is, they began to work against us rather than for us. And the way that objects have that potential and other attachments and relationships have that potential is that they are affective, affective with an A, in that we work upon them and these objects work upon us. It's not a one-way street where we just use an object for ourselves and that's it, like, like a hammer, and then we cast the hammer away as though we were done with it. We actually get shaped by these objects in their individual instances, you know, in the, these very specific objects, but within a certain mind frame as well, that is a mind frame that likes to overconsume, we are being shaped as well. So the person buying 10 pairs of pants online a day uh, is not only changed by each one of these objects that they buy, each one of these pairs of pants, they are changed simply by the fact that they are constantly engaging in this effective relationship with themselves as a consumer in this over-consuming kind of uh, mindscape or this, this kind of uh, so very much a social phenomenon. Now in terms of the economic conditions here, Berlant is clear that at some point in the late 60s, early 70s, with the rise of various uh, Regan or Thatcher-esque politics, what is sometimes kind of, uh, maybe I will just say colloquially called, uh, or for shorthand, the emergence of neoliberalism, what we began to see were decreased opportunities for people for more stable uh, livelihoods. And in a sense, Berlant is buying into an image of pre-neoliberal or pre-Reagan-esque uh, economics that isn't quite as flowery or isn't quite as nice as I think some people like to attribute to it. Sure, uh, for some people there were these opportunities afforded, that is, people could work a nine to five with only one person in the household making money, uh, which would often be obviously gendered, where women would stay home, raise the kids, and the man could go home, and then they would have enough money for the whole family, to, and they would have a, the man would have a retirement, so on and so forth. But these opportunities were foreclosed to black people, to, at least in the uh, US context, uh, Hispanic people, women, and it, it's it's kind of a and, and in any case, Berlant is saying that there is there was this split, this kind of uh, transformation from a more stable political economic uh, uh, backdrop into one that is a lot more precarious, which is certainly the case. The kinds of work that we see uh, emerging today, be they in the gig economy or on on various platforms like platform capitalism, we see less and less or fewer and fewer opportunities for stability. And because of that, we see fewer opportunities for uh, attaining the dream of the good life. That is the dream that capitalism, especially within the American context or in the Western context, conveys to us and confers upon us as subjects of that system. That if we just work our nine to five, then that's it. We will have all our basic needs met. We, we will be able to raise the 2.3 kids. We will be able to have the white picket fence uh, in the suburbs and 
so on and so forth. Now, that when that began to change, moving into a more precarious work uh, environment or, or kind of work uh, force, what began to happen is that there was more value attached to the attachments that we fostered within this precarious system, where it was almost like people were just trying to grab onto anything they could, like any kind of life raft, in order to keep themselves somewhat afloat. And the kind of precarity that we saw economically really fosters this, this need for things that will ground us, and will, that will make us feel good, and will, for a moment, give us the sense, or provide the sense, the illusion, that we are living that good life. When in fact, all that these things are doing, especially in terms of like objects, or uh, poisonous political views or anything, is just keep us in a, in a degree of arrested development so that we cannot actually look at the system more broadly. That is a system that is in perpetual crises, uh, a system that is just at, at the verge of collapse, but that is itself a collapse. It is a system that has arrived at a point that all it knows is destruction and collapse, destruction of, you know, basic <laughs> kinds of bonds and, and uh, uh, relationships that are uh, effective but not in a cruel way, that, that motivate uh, improvement. And all of these things are, are slowly being uh, taken away. Now, as kind of an aside, the way that Berlant frames this problem is through, as I think I've already made kind of clear, through an affective lens. That is, she's describing a situation in which people engage with the world effectively, and that has always been the case. People always engage with the world effectively. But the reason that she stresses this is that she wants to kind of push against or push back against what is kind of commonly understood as, as trauma theory or trauma discourse. Because for her, trauma discourse prescribes too heavily to the notion that there was a kind of definitive catastrophic event either in uh, an individual's life or in entire world history's life. And it is because of this catastrophe, because of this moment, this crisis, this traumatic event, that it reframes people, it shapes people in a certain way. Berlant is suspicious about that approach because it kind of retroactively constructs the human before the catastrophe, before the crisis, as being a kind of uh, pure, you know, they were this kind of um, unblemished uh, subject engaging with the world. Now, Berlant doesn't necessarily disagree with that. She, she ascribes a lot of meaning to trauma discourse and trauma theory. But where she disagrees is that today, because of these perpetual crises that people are constantly living effectively, she's not satisfied with an idea that there was like a traumatic moment that uh, you know caused this, or or is the is the reason that people engage in kind of cruel optimism or that are satisfied with it. Instead, because she sees these kind of perpetual crises, she thinks that it's much better to look at the situation effectively as, as having all of these different moments occurring at various times, all acting upon the subject at, at, at every moment, not an, in a specific time, a specific place, at a specific, uh, in a specific event. Now, and, and it is a little bit of a, I guess, a cosmetic difference. It, it doesn't, 
mean all too much, but it, it's just it's it's an important distinction, especially when we consider that the types of cruel optimism she goes to describe throughout the book often depict uh, quick fixes, kind of immediate satisfactions that we think are going to make our lives better, not not grandiose ones to fix like a grandiose traumatic event. The response that we have, that is the effective response that matches to some extent the uh, crises, the kind of harms that are inflicted upon us, mirrors it in that these crises are perpetual and so are the um, solutions, the cruel optimistic solutions we try to use to make ourselves feel better, to get us out of that situation. There are constant attempts to make a life for oneself in this world. That is, these are just strategies that are employed for people to get through the day. And so she's not like condemning people who uh, overconsume or anything like that, but that they are in many in many ways uh, a kind of product of a system that gives them no other option. That is, they're just trying to craft any opportunity they can in order to keep going in this life that they live. As a kind of residual effect, what we see is the the kind of disappearance of a distinction between past and future, where we are living in a perpetual present. It's about satisfying immediate needs, immediate wants to give us the sense of security, this this uh, immediate gratification, instead of looking to the future as you know, like saying like, oh, well, uh, how am I going to make myself comfortable later on? It is about making myself comfortable now. And it's not about looking to the past and saying like, oh, well, how did this trend emerge? It's just about the now. And in the now, we have a kind of consolidation of a certain neoliberal subjectivity, one that is predicated entirely upon our own being, not on anyone else's, not on caring for anyone else or, or, or anything. And with that, we, we see this kind of individualistic uh, sentimentality really fomenting and really, really developing. But what also happens is that people for Berlant, at least the, the solutions that the people use to help themselves become less and less comprehensible to others because they're, you know, they're just the only strategy they have to survive and they, it just makes sense to themselves because everyone experiences these perpetual crises in this perpetual pre present in very different ways, which would explain why there are so many efforts to kind of um, to pathologize people who overconsume, for example, as being like it's just their own problem uh, and they have to be kind of dealt with in, in those terms. Or, um, you know, people who engage in, in dubious like political uh, beliefs or have dubious political beliefs. Like they, they're symptomatic of a greater issue. It's not that people are, are like evil. They are organizing themselves in a way that makes sense to them in accordance effectively with a system that is in such turmoil. And so that more or less covers it. Um, if, if there's a, like a resounding response to this uh, in that people want the whole book, I might, I might do it at some point, but it's, it, as I said, it's tricky. But if I, you know, if I said anything that wasn't right, I'd like to hear about it. Um, or the, anything that should be added, I'd like to hear about it. If you know you like what I did, subscribe, like, share, tell your friends, and click on one of these sides for another video, and I'll catch you next time.